The NFX Podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating and review and by sharing with friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos by following us on Twitter at NFX and visiting NFX.com. And now, on to the show. Hi, this is James Career, and today on the NFX Podcast, we've got Ali Tomaseb with us. He's a partner at DCVC, and originally, he came out of Iran and moved to London, started startups, and then came to Silicon Valley in 2015, and he's written a book called Super Founders. It just came out yesterday, and that book was the result of his study of hundreds of startup founders who had created companies that were worth over a billion dollars. And there's a history of people in the venture industry studying the overview about what makes for these unicorn companies. And guys like Nabil Hyatt over at Spark Capital or people like Chris Farmer over at Signalfire or ourselves here at NFX, where we've studied the unicorns and to see what produced the returns. And what, of course, we found is that it's largely correlated to having network effects in your business. And that's why we're called NFX. But unlike the rest of us, he's really published his results in this book, which is very wide ranging. And so today we've got him on the pod to talk about what he learned, where the data came from, and what he thinks the best advice for founders would be. And so today, we've got Ali on the NFX podcast, and we're going to talk with him about what the best learnings are for founders. So Ali, so glad to have you here on the NFX podcast today. I'm super excited to be here with you, James. Yeah. So a few years back, you published a blog post about super founders, and now you've turned into a book. You've gone further. And I want to get into that with you today and just talk broadly more about how we think about analyzing what makes for great companies, what makes for great startups. So talk through us about your background, and I'd love to just have everyone hear sort of where you came from, because it's a great story. My own history? Sure. I'm originally from Iran and I actually lived there and grew up there and started a little company back there and then went to uh, studied electrical engineering and then went to London and did biomedical engineering, did a lot of research on brain computer interfaces. This was a decade before Elon Musk made, made that space sexy, uh, you know, published papers there and then started a consumer industrial hardware company, uh, grew it to, you know, a larger team and millions of dollars in revenues. And that was before starting my career in venture and getting into the dark side or the other side of the table, as people say it. And it's been a very rewarding journey. It's, I think it's... And how did you come to the US? I came to the US through this green card program called the Extraordinary Ability Program, EB1A. And did you go to the GSB? I did a program there. I didn't do a full MBA. I just needed something to get my foot in here. Got it. And what year did you come to the Valley? In 2015. Got it. And then what happened? How did you end up at DCVC? I had my startup and I was growing a team in Sunnyvale. And then, you know, in that transition, and then I went to GSP and I was thinking about what's next. You know, maybe it's a different company or going on the venture side, or I didn't specifically know what to do. So I started writing. I was thinking about, you know, what, what's next. I started analyzing a bunch of spaces and I you know wrote about different ideas that I had in venture and, you know, in healthcare AI. And this was the early days of blockchain infrastructure. So I wrote about them. And, you know, some of those early Medium articles piqued the interest of some people. And I got to know Matt Aqua through Twitter direct messages. And I had a job, I think, a couple of weeks later. That's fantastic. That's great. Those guys are doing a great job over there. And so then you got it to DCVC. And while you were there, is that when you decided to do this study on what super founders are? 
Right at that point, I mean, the idea I had, it was even before that. And I think some part of the work I had even started before kind of starting my job at DCDC. So the question definitely was there and a little bit of the work was started. But yes, I continued to work along the way. Got it. So talk us through the methodology you use to gather the data to uh, write this article and then the book. How'd that work? Sure. So, you know, I think as founders, a lot of our inspiration or a lot of our role models come from what the media tells us and comes from what we typically see. And what we typically see is the very, very famous stories. It's the story of Zuckerberg. It's the story of Bill Gates. And, you know, they made their way into movies and every popular media about startup and entrepreneurship. And, you know, it, it was a very curious question to me that does do every successful company look like them or do they not? Because I was getting a sense through some of these companies that are becoming successful or were becoming successful at a time that a lot of them look different. And I think it, I had an inherent question that, you know, can I become a better venture capitalist by knowing, you know, by a data-driven way, if some companies work better than other companies? And I guess, you know, a lot of people have probably thought about this question, but it's a hard thing to collect the data on. Not that many people have collected a similar data set. Of course, there's data on funding on platforms like PitchBook and Crunchbase about the history of fundraising. And we know the names of the founders of companies, but there's not that much data about, you know, for example, how many competitors did a specific company have when they started? What was the market size? What was the career path? You know, we don't have quantified data on the titles of these people, the companies they had worked, the companies they'd started, their you know, success level or whatnot. You know, there's a little bit of study about academic background of some successful founders, but, you know, a lot of these come from the academic side, which often Sometimes I feel like they don't define a startup similar way to how, you know, people in the venture or startup community mm-hmm. define what a startup is. For example, there's this, you know, Harvard article about the age of these successful founders, you know, that shows they are 45 and older and those are more successful. But when you look at it, you know, only 20% of those companies they had analyzed are C-Corps. And I guess, you know, 100% of the companies we analyze are C-Corps. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shows, you know, we're looking at different types of universes from the academics who are looking at startups. So, you know, I thought, let me look at every company that has reached a billion dollar or more valuation through you know, private funding, public IPOs, acquisition. And I defined 65 elements from founder and team, market dynamics, idea origination, defensibility, all the way to fundraising, you know, and the elements around money and efficiency with money. And I collect this data and I published some of the early results in that Medium article back in 2018. And, you know, a lot of people talked about it, probably one of the most viral articles of that time. You know, close to a million people read that article. 2017. Was it 17? Oh, no, May 18. Maybe 18. So, you know, a lot of people started talking about that article. You know, I I got a lot of very interesting responses. A lot of very, very famous people reached out talking about this research. And I guess one of the key feedback that I got is, you know, this doesn't mean anything without comparison to a baseline. You know, if you just look at unicorns, what does that mean? And that was fair feedback. But collecting data on a control group is, you know, a very, very hard task. So for the next two years, I set on to collect the same 65 data elements on non-unicorns, companies that raised a minimum of $3 million in venture capital. And, you know, 
probably one or two percent of them became unicorns, but the majority of them, the 98% of them did not become unicorns, failed, you know, were zombied. So I collected the same data set. It took me two years. And, you know, a lot of people, again, think this data piece is trivial. You can automate that. You can put NLP on that. It's all judgment. Like literally, I collected this piece by piece, one data point by one data point, you know, taking me 10 minutes each data point. It was a very, very manual task. Right. You can't even outsource that because I think there's a lot of judgment that goes through mm-hmm. trying to get to the truth. I used the Wayback machine and went to the historical interviews. Sometimes I emailed these founders and asked them about information about the early days of their companies. So it was a very hard data collection task. And, you know, after four years of data collection, I finally got to analysis and, you know, compare them. And the results were shocking. I think a lot of these things that we think matter in terms of what success is, they don't. And it was shocking to me. And, you know, there was a bunch of signals that I also observed about what does matter and what makes people more successful. And I got to, you know, interview, I think about 16 people, founders of these billion dollar companies, anywhere from Eric Yuan of Zoom and Tony Fidel of Nest and Tom Preston of GitHub to investors from Alfred Lin and Alot Gill and Peter Thiel. So that was a good kind of process for me to learn from them and write this data and put everything together into a book. The pandemic came at the right time for me so I could write the book. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And so of these people that you interviewed, who gave you the most surprising interview? Rachel Carlson, founder of Guild Education, it's one of the most fascinating interviews I did. I learned so much from her and it's a very honest interview that teaches a lot of things and goes into a lot of interesting details. And it's all in the book. It's mostly in the book. Yeah. The other one is Max Mullen of Instacart. I think I had an interesting conversation with him as well and kind of learning about his history and some life hacks he does. That was interesting. Got it. And so with the Guild, what was the thing that stood out? What were some of the things that she said that stood out? Let's see. So one thing is about, you know, not solving your personal problem. And this is also another, you know, a topic that I discuss in the book that, you know, a lot of times we talk about founders are more successful when they are their own customers mm-hmm. and they're solving a problem for themselves. And that's not really true. I feel like a lot of people are trying to create that narrative to get better press and stories and you end up hearing that story. But when you dig deeper, you see everybody went through an ideation process. I actually have a quote from you in the book that you know you talk about. All of these successful founders, they go through this deliberate ideation process that we don't necessarily hear about a couple of years after the startup was founded. So same case for her. I mean, she's a Stanford GSB student, very successful, worked at the White House. She's not a college student, but her product works for the customer is college students. So she was never in their shoes, but she created a product that works perfectly for them and understands them and, you know, got to work for them. So that's one about, you know, how she got to learn one side of the marketplace that, that she was creating, even though she was never in their shoes. And then the other part was about the location geography that you know, the company was founded and funded in Silicon Valley. And they deliberately moved the company to Denver, which you know isn't a big tech hub necessarily, or not yet. That was a sharp decision to do that and how they convinced the investors. They basically ran a blind recruiting process and showed the board the candidates and the board picked the candidates that were in Denver. Hmm. And they liked them more than the candidates they could recruit in the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of quality. That's how they convinced the investors. Got it. That's interesting. So the book is shooting some sacred cows in the startup community, right? When you set out to write this, did you start with that intention? No, I did not. I mean, I feel like I wanted to be very honest in the book. And I hope that comes away that, you know, at every point I talk about, you know, this is what you see in the data, but here is what opposes the data. 
And this is representative. This is not, these are, you know, I try to be very honest. And in the conclusion, I say, you know, take all of these data points and analysis with a grain of salt and, you know, like any business book, treat it with a little bit of a skepticism. So no, I'm not that type of person who tries to, you know, create controversy and get media around it. It was just what I found and I wanted to share it with the world. And, you know, some of them are against what we thought are true. Some of them, you know, are confirmed truisms. Yeah, got it. There has been this wonderful history of people trying to do this. You've gone much further than anyone else, I think, in collecting the data and then publishing it. You know, I know that Nabil Hyatt did this. He's over at Spark. He's a great investor over there. He looked at this. He'd never published. I know that Chris Farmer over at SignalFire has done this. I know we've done this in particular, you know, around looking at all the unicorns and how the network effects in the business models have affected their outcomes. And of course, you know, the state of Massachusetts back in the 80s and 90s did similar studies mm -hmm. in an attempt to figure out why they were losing to Silicon Valley in the race for growing. You know, and so there's a long history of people generally looking at this. And you know, I'm wondering, have you looked at other broader issues than the ones you wrote about in the book and you might follow up with that, you know, have we looked at, you know, in and out networks, you know, people who are in network versus out network? Mm. or something like that. Because we did an article called Your Life on Network Effects that is one of our more popular ones where it sort of analyzes the network decisions that we as people make. They either put us in network to learn a certain amount of information so that we can learn enough to you know, start a company like Guild, or we've made choices that take us into networks where we don't learn those things and we end up uh, a different life path. Do you ever look at in-network or out-network? Because you yourself, you know, have spent time at the GSB. You yourself are working at DCVC. You've moved to Silicon Valley, you know, from Tehran to London to Silicon Valley, sort of moving up the chain toward, the, you know, Rome, if you will, for this industry. You know, have you looked at in-network or out-of-network yet? I think in a lot of what I learned from looking at data is basically this first layer of data, a lot of times they're proxy rules and you can't make too many decisions from the first layer. You need to go one layer deeper at least on everything. So for example, you know, the data says age by itself isn't a correlating factor. And now you can go deeper into the, you know, types of years of experience or what you've done during those years that you've worked. And that might be a predictive factor. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, you should be technical. If you're non-technical, you know, we don't invest. And, you know, again, you can go deeper and say, okay, you can be non-technical. And, you know, in fact, half of billion dollar companies are started by non-technical CEOs. Mm -hmm. And you can go in and say, okay, if you're non-technical, but you've done this and that, then you're fine. And you're even probably more likely to start a billion dollar company. And you could be technical and you may have not done these things and these other things. And you may be less Likely, So I feel like in a lot of these factors that I analyzed, you have to go one layer deeper. And I think one of the great feedbacks that I got when I was writing the book was, you know, the first draft of the book was a lot of these first layers. And the feedback that I got was, you know, go into these secondary layers. And I think that helped the book, you know, improve a lot by me kind of trying to match one signal to another and kind of go deeper in a lot of these factors. In specifically, I think one thing that I found is... A lack of socioeconomic diversity. So, you know, obviously we have problems around gender diversity and racial diversity, and there are things happening there. You see proof that things are improving. There are more female founders starting companies, getting funded, and starting unicorns. We see that trend. Still a very small part, but at least it's growing. What I don't see in the data is socioeconomic diversity. And it's basically, you know, if you did an MBA and you could start a company right after, or if you went to college and you start a company right after, didn't have to worry about paying debt or you could fail forward. Now you see a lot of these founders came from families that they could fail. They could take the risk. They could you know, not take a job and go and start a company or do a lot of these things. And I think that is one risk that we are running into that 
you know, at the end of the day, we are creating a filter with socioeconomic diversity, and I hope we can do more there. And I will be donating all the proceeds from the book towards kind of offer social mobility, and it wouldn't do anything. But you know, I think that's a larger trend that we should look for. Yeah, it's interesting. It's you know, we talk a bunch of, in our analyses about networks with preferred attachment, where those who are ahead get further ahead, and you know, it's such a pernicious problem that it was mentioned five times in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it's been around human societies forever. And the quote in Book of Matthew says, to he who hath shall be given. And what people don't normally quote is the semicolon. And then it says, and to he who hath not, everything shall be taken away. It's like, whoa. You know, it just feels like there are these boundary layers of sort of mathematical activity around the network where people who are socioeconomically advantaged have the opportunity to not only learn what they need to learn to build a billion dollar company, but they have the sort of emotional space and the safety to try and fail. For sure. And it allows the winds of time and compounding math to sort of keep pushing them forward. And so you're seeing some of that in the data, I guess. So let's dig into what you found. You've got a lot of things you've looked at in the book. What were the sort of top three things that you think were surprising to you or things that you know, help you in your daily activity as an investor at DCVC? Of course. Let's start with a couple in different categories. The first one is about solo founders. I think there has historically been this negative connotation around, you know, if you're solo, you're not going to be successful. Go find a co-founder. The first step to start a company is to go and find a co-founder. And, you know, the data shows one out of every five unicorn that was started in the past 15 years was solo founded. And when I compare the two groups, they are not less likely or they're not more likely. In fact, I found, again, similar to age, number of co-founders is not a correlating factor with success. So you can have five co-founders and be successful. That's rare, but doesn't mean if you have five co-founders, you're less likely to succeed. And you can have, you know, be a solo founder and succeed. And I think that there, where it relates to action for founders is, you know, if you think you have everything, you don't have to force yourself to find a co-founder. On the other hand, I think the bigger problem is a lot of people think that exactly needs to be two co-founders in a company, and they wouldn't give a co-founder title to that third person or the next two people or the next three people because they want to make sure the company stays at a dual co-founder situation. And you know, as long as you have a CEO and you have a process, if it helps you attract the best team, you can call everybody, all the five initial team members, a co-founder and attract best talent. So that's one of the interesting points that I saw. Yeah, interesting. The other one, which is a little bit counterintuitive because you know everybody talks about pairing a a non-technical founder with a technical founder or vice versa. In fact, when you look at the unicorns, the non-technical CEOs, they were more likely to have picked a non-technical second co-founder. And the technical CEOs, they were more likely to have picked a second technical co-founder. So it's more likely that you're technical, technical, or non-technical, non-technical than what we typically think as, you know, the Wozniak and Jobs of the world. Got it. And what about sort of where people have worked? You know, because one of the things that people say is, oh, I saw this varsity blues thing saying, oh, parents are paying millions of dollars to get their kids into the best schools so that they can get into the network to learn, you know, and then be more successful in life. Is there any correlation there in schools? There is. Basically, the unicorn founders, they were more likely to have attended top 10 schools. However, this is the important part, and I think that's the honesty part of the book, that when you look at the full distribution, there is as many and even a little bit more founders of these billion-dollar companies that had gone to schools not even in the top 100. So that's a long tail. The long tail is even longer 
than the top 10. So obviously they are more likely because from 10 schools, you have a third of the unicorn founders, but the long term is long. And, you know, there is a lot of founders that didn't even go to a school that I had heard of the name and they founded, you know, massive companies. Got it. So the school thing is correlated, but uh, shouldn't make everyone feel as if they have no chance, (laughs) given that they weren't in one of the top 10. Of course. Yeah. So basically 64% of unicorn founders did not go to a top 10 school. That's a good thing. What about where they worked? Because a lot of people say, oh, you know, if you get a job at Facebook, then you're trained in all the ways of, you know, viral growth and you're trained in data. And then you have an advantage when you go and start your company. Have you found that to be true? It's a very similar distribution to the university Mm -hmm. thing. So yes, they were more likely to have worked at brand name schools and some companies come in that, you know, uh, for example, McKinsey and Goldman as well come into that. It's not just Facebook. And even when you go older, you see companies like Oracle and in the more recent cohort companies like Square come on top. In both of these cases, I don't think there's necessarily a causation effect here. There might be a lot of reverse correlation in that, you know, these are, you know, smart people. They ended up working at Facebook. They ended up starting a company. They ended up, you know, raising money. It wasn't because they had worked at Facebook or learned anything specific at Facebook that they ended up becoming successful. They already had those characteristics, those resources, even if they had worked at you know another company that didn't have or create those tool sets for them they would have, you know, gone on to continue in Duval. Probably the same thing for universities, but, you know, eventually you are the collection of things you've done and the connections that you collect. So they do end up mattering, but not necessarily directly. Mm, Interesting. Because one of the things I saw in the history of the unicorn founders, a lot of them, according to the data, had come from Google. And yet when I look out at the unicorns I've seen and when I talk to Google alumni and I ask them to name, you know, the great unicorn companies that have come from ex-Googlers, there's a lot of silence in the room. And I haven't done a full study of it, but you have. And so I'm just wondering, that was really surprising to me to see that Google was scoring at the top of where the founders were coming from. It is. Yeah, Google is still number one. And you know, part of it is, you know, Google hires 100,000 very smart people. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a number game there that, you know, if you can pay 100,000 super smart people that are there to work for a couple of years and go and start a company, you will end up, you know, having hired a bunch of them. You're listening to the NFX podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these insights. Follow us on social at NFX and visit NFX.com for more content. And now back to the show. I, I love this quote that, you know, the venture capital game or the unicorn game isn't just a game of home runs. It's a game of grand slams, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are outliers. These companies themselves are outliers. And so, of course, there's a lot of noise in the patterns, right? Because of the attempts, millions of attempts at startups, we're ending up looking at a data set that's just a few hundred, right? hundred or a thousand, somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. There is a lot of noise. And I think I tried to denoise this a little bit with some statistical work and try to understand what is actually a difference in the distribution. And now let me tell you about one of the signals that I did observe. And that goes back to more of a character thing. That a lot of these founders of these billion dollar companies, regardless of you know where they had worked or what school they had gone or where they were technical or not, they had an itch for building. When you look at their history and career, they had built projects, they had built stuff, they had sold, not necessarily companies, they had sold stuff online, they had sold projects. And you see that. And those kind of people, like even if you don't have the perfect resume, if you didn't go to Stanford and worked at Google, was like a PM at Google and start a company. But if you had never started something, 
if you've never sold something, if you've never created something, the other founder who has done those stuff, but never had a chance to work at Google or at Stanford, I would bet on the other person. Mm-hmm. I would bet on the person with, you know, who doesn't necessarily have the resume, but has that hustle, has that itch for building. And you can see that. You can see that in the history of them, you know, failing, winning small. And it feels like, you know, from media again, and from recency bias, that a lot of times we just see the last thing that these exceptional founders have done. And the last company, we feel like it's their only company that they've done. And the only thing that they've created. And so if you're a founder, maybe think, am I a natural builder? Have I always been building since I was six or 10 or eight or 12, right? Exactly. Is it in my DNA to build stuff? Yeah, building and selling. Building and selling. So yeah, that's the characteristic that's more important than, you know. Does that come out in the data or is that sort of anecdotal having with you going through all this? Or did you get into measuring? That does come from data. Yeah, I did go into measuring that. And, you know, specifically in the world of venture capital, you know, if a company gets acquired or, you know, it's a small tech acquisition, it's normally considered a small failure, right? In the world of, you know, venture capital, when you know we're looking for billion dollar outcomes or, you know, a couple hundred million dollar exits, depending on the fund size, you may be even, you know, an exit of less than $3 billion might you know, move the needle or be big enough to return the fund. So a lot of these smaller exits may not mean that much, but they do. And that's one of the key things that the data showed that, you know, like everything, practice makes perfect, even in entrepreneurship. And founders who had, you know, this is a common trait that you see, you know, founder has been building a bunch of stuff, creates a company, maybe that fails. The second company is, you know, a small echo hire. And it's the third company that becomes the $10 billion company. And in each step, they have accumulated these resources, this network they can call on, that first five employees they can hire. They know how to deal with investors and, you know, the raise that seed round or series A round. So these things add up and, you know, the founders who've learned the process once and maybe even gone through a small acquisition and seen the full cycle once, they tend to be a much more likely to build billion dollar companies next. Right. So these 10,000 hour concept, if you're in the field yeah. and learning every day and having a hundred paper cuts every day, you build up a lot of knowledge and cultural acumen, sort of cultural capital as well as skills, as well as knowledge about how to move or probabilities about what's going to happen next. You get a much more detailed probability tree to move through the idea space to, so that you can be more successful at every decision point. And that's iterative, that's cumulative, that's incremental. And so that you're seeing as being much more predictive than age or gender or things like that. Or technical or even university and where you worked. Got it. And so as you you know think about what a founder should get out of this book, I mean, is this helping people to remove some mental roadblocks for people? Yes, I would summarize the book or what I want people to take away from this, that, you know, there's a lot of unknown bias that we have, mostly coming from narrative bias and, you know, very famous stories get a lot more attention and that they tend to create what we think. But there's $300 billion companies that have gone created and nobody has seen it all. Like even the most successful investors have seen 20, like directly. Mm-hmm. So nobody has seen it all unless you holistically look at the data. And when you do look at the data, it seems like a bunch of factors that we thought do matter. They don't. They're just proxy metrics. So, you know, your age, your university, where you worked, being technical or not, a lot of things about competition, you know, is this a competitive space, the dynamics of the market, you know, there's a lot of things on that in the book that, you know, you can mostly forget about them. What does matter is just 
keep on building and keep on learning at each step. Nobody had that one overnight success. And if you start a company and you expect, you know, to start the $10 billion company in that first try, you know, that may happen, but it's more likely to happen in your second try or fifth try or 10th try. It's not just talking about, you know, being a serial entrepreneur. It's not about that. It's about, you know, having an itch about creating a stuff finishing them. And, you know, it's these small failures and small successes that prepares founders for what's to come for them. So I hope it removes some stereotypes and biases on the venture capitalist side. And for founders, it's inspiration that, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing and learn from every step and, you know, hopefully you are able to fail forward and start again, you will get there as long as you learn from each step and learn faster and better than anybody else. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely think we should be encouraging people to get there. I think it doesn't diminish the sort of pain of being a founder. I remember coming out of HBS and selling my first company a few weeks before the fifth reunion and going back and saying, look, guys, it was great to be here for a year and a half, you know, working at HBS, but you guys did not do a good job of ever warning us how much pain and suffering it takes to build one of these things. You know, you have your entrepreneurial curriculum, but you never have a case that just says, you know, you are in pain for many of the months and weeks and years to try to figure this out. And I think with you writing this book and me seeing it and you sending it to me, and thank you for sending me a copy. It's a beautiful book. And I felt like, you know, since I started doing startups in the 90s and investing in them, this is sort of a culmination of something that's been going on for 25 years, which is that starting a company, doing a startup, if you will, has become a thing. Mm -hmm. It's become a path. It's become a package, a lifestyle. And in the 80s, investment banking, this happened to investment banking where it wasn't a thing before the 80s. It was just, you know, your dad did it or whatever. And then you just start doing it. And there was only a few people doing it, but then it became a thing. And people would go to high school or they'd go to college and the college recruiters would say, hey, you might consider working in investment banking. And you say, what's investment banking? And they say, well, we've got a track, we've got a path. You apply for the job and then we move you up analyst associate and you become an investment banker and you make all this money. And you're like, whoa, I had no idea. And so all these people went into it, even if they weren't natural investment bankers, because it was sort of the next run in the ladder. And the same thing's been happening to startups, hasn't it? I mean, with the transparency, I mean, in the 90s, it wasn't really a thing. The only people who were entrepreneurs in the 90s were people who were compelled to be by their genetics. They were selling worms to fishermen when they were six near the <laughs> lake in their house. And then they were selling seeds from the comic books, or then they were, you know, starting little school stores and selling pencils. They were building, they were selling, just like you said, and they couldn't do anything else. And they were compelled to be entrepreneurs. They did it. There was 80 active venture capitalists in the whole country. You know, everybody had copied, you know, Greylock and Sequoia and Draper from the 60s and the 50s. and But there's still only 80. And then it started to become a thing. And people are growing up reading about Zuckerberg and watching the movies and seeing this. And now everyone's like, well, how do I want to be that guy? You know, just like they looked at Hollywood and said, I want to be on the screen. Or they looked at, you know, Wall Street and said, I want to make a ton of money doing that. And then it became a thing. And so now just in the last 20 years, because of the transparency of the blogosphere, because it's so publicized how much money's being made in startups, it's become a thing. And your book starts to say, okay, now that it's a thing, let's study it. Yeah. And sort of package it for people and say, well, what are the rules? What are the paths for you to follow this path, to pursue this lifestyle, which has been held out now in the press as a desired outcome? And so it's drawing in people who might not have always been builders, sellers, doers, 
but they want the outcome, right. which is the back end, right? Yeah, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to be overnight and everything going off to the right, right? Yeah, it's not going to be like they're reading about, just like going to Hollywood ended up in tears for so many people. You know, they'd get on a bus in the 70s and they'd head to Hollywood and they'd get sexually assaulted or whatever. It was, it's like a mess. And I think that's what's happening now. There's this siren call for people to come and do this and no one's really telling them how hard it is and how deep you need to dig. And your book is helping people understand the context and the probabilities yeah. in a way that no one's really shown it to them, made it even more transparent. I think it's a kind of a watershed moment that somebody's actually published an analysis of this path and what it takes. So good for you for doing that. I'm glad to hear that. And I hope it's more inspiration than being a downer that, you know, yes, it's hard. And yes, it takes many years. And yes, it may take many attempts. But a lot of people have gone through that same path. And I think for a lot of, you know, first time founders or founders who just failed or not doing super great, or it was, you know, they couldn't raise the next funding. So they had to sell the company for cents on the dollar. You know, it's a lot of inspiration for them that, you know, you learned a ton from that attempt, go at it again. This is the path. Like everybody else who was successful took the same path. So mm -hmm. you, know, you can do it. Right. And so that's the minimal you'd want people to take on is grit. Yep. Yeah. And not to let some assumptions about yourself or about the conditions under which you're starting this company be what stops you from doing it. Yeah. And hopefully for the investment community as well to you know, go deeper into characteristic levels than proxy metrics. Like, do you have an MBA or not? Or, mm -hmm. you know, is this market, there's five competitors, so not, or is Google here or not? So we should probably look at these things deeper than take the proxy metrics, because again, the data kind of shows a lot of these proxy rules on that first layer, they are non-correlated. So one thing that you want people to do is to change their sort of mental model about the amount of grit it's going to take. And then also the fact that the blockers you see as being blockers may not be the blockers and the VCs should realize that too. What are maybe two other things that you would want startup founders to take away and do now that they've read your book? Maybe I think we can refer to some of the parts. You know, one truism is the fact about the painkillers versus vitamin pills. So, you know, the data clearly shows that painkillers have a higher chance of becoming billion dollar companies. However, you know, if you define the vitamin pills well and you know you're creating a vitamin pill and if you do certain things, you know, vitamin pills can be good companies too. And that's community and brand and, you know, a sticky habit. If you add these things to your vitamin company and product, you know, you can actually build a decent company, even though if, if it's a vitamin pill, that's one. The other one is competition. And, you know, the data showed in those cases that startups were competing with large incumbent companies in, you know, these old industries. Doesn't necessarily need to be even in an old industry, but in an industry that has only these old sleep incumbents, they are more likely to succeed rather than, you know, copying another company, which is, you know, super highly funded at this point, at the point that you are starting a company. So, you know, when you see that there is a space and there's like 20 companies getting super highly funded on the very same exact idea and premise, even a couple of years after. That makes me feel like, you know, there's a ton of other opportunities left, you know. And also, I feel like given that we are deep tech investors and I typically want to go into old industries, you know, tech is almost a, you know, 800 billion, $1 trillion market. There is many, many industries that are not tech and they are a couple times larger than the whole tech industry together altogether. Mm. So there's a lot of other opportunities. And I think a little bit part of it comes from the fact that we have fed each other that you need to be solving a personal problem. Climate change isn't anybody's personal problem. Food security, water security isn't anybody's personal problem. Higher level, macro level, you know, government, civic, education problems isn't anybody's personal problem. Each and every one of these problems, they're much bigger than the whole tech industry, all SaaS, everything all together. So, you know, go and try to solve these bigger, harder problems and the rewards are going to be bigger. 
Got it. That's really good. That's really good. And day to day, when you're investing in DCVC, do you use some of these in talking with your founders to help them understand what they can and can't do or you know, to encourage them? 100%. I use it for sourcing and I use it for decision making. And I think number one, I use it to make sure I don't let my biases and preconceived notions about any of these elements come into the way of me backing an exceptional entrepreneur. So there's a lot of cases you can create problems and you can, you know, take yourself out of investing in a good company by diligencing it kind of too much. Right. And I think the data kind of helps me to understand that, you know, there's always all these cases. And if you think this is specific situation with the market is a problem, then I go and look at the data and say, okay, there's this many companies that succeeded that way. And if you think this type of competition is a hard thing, or if you think this kind of what this pivot happened, there's a lot of mental models that kind of we create and say, okay, if this founder did this and then this did that, that's not a good sign. And a lot of cases, you know, we take ourselves out of investing and backing an exceptional entrepreneur. So number one, I hope and I actively actually see that it helps me reduce those kind of biases. So, you know, if a team is good and the entrepreneur is good, and I believe in this, you know, it's, it's great on one axis and then it can go against the odds in this two other two axis. And then the other one is decision making that, you know, if I see two different deals and I have to pick one, it actually does help me to put it down on paper and kind of get a sense of where they have to go against the data and how many different, you know, risk layers they're taking. So doing it a little bit more methodically. And the questions that I ask founders, I try to go kind of deeper than these, deeper than proxy metrics and proxy rules to kind of their past and the characteristics rather than kind of higher level, just surface level questions. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. It might be that once people read the book, they're going to start making up all sorts of stories about how entrepreneurial they were when they were seven and 10 so that they can give the VCs what they want and just get the damn money and move on. It's kind of interesting. There's always a... The good thing is in this digital-ish world, like at this point, there is kind of proof. If you dig deeper, you can find or not find a proof for anything people claim. And I'm pretty sure you do a lot of this, but you will be amazed a lot of things founders say, and then I do a check and I say, okay, that does not check out, right. especially about founding companies when you know people were early team members. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, everyone's trying to stretch to reach the heights and it's a constant battle. You know, there's a Goldilocks zone between exaggerating and lying. Yep. And there's a Goldilocks zone you pointed out, which I love, which is just, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to be knowledgeable enough about your market and your technology, but not so knowledgeable that it destroys all of your naivete because without that naivete, you're probably not going to take the jump. You're not going to wander into a market and take them on if you know too much. And so there's a Goldilocks zone there. And the point you made is that the VCs should take the same Goldilocks approach. You need to do diligence, but if you overanalyze, you can kill any deal. Yep. You got to have some faith. And there is so much randomness in our market. I don't think people like to admit that. Yeah, you can figure out a lot of things. Like great entrepreneurs would end up changing the idea and the problems. And the problems that a company would face after three years after you invest has changed so much that you know your initial concerns about the company. I don't think I've ever seen any case that in your initial investment memo that you know the problems that you necessarily think are true, like they come and the great entrepreneurs find a way to solve that problem, but they have the next set of problems to go after. Yeah. So Ali, what's next now that you've done the book? I mean, it's just published yesterday, but what's next for you? I don't know yet. It took a lot of time getting it to the finish line. I'm happy it's out there. I am going to, you know, go spend more time with the entrepreneurs of Back for now and see what the future brings. Awesome. Well, it's great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for spending time and congrats on the book and uh, we'll see you out there. I was glad to be here. Thank you, James. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. 
Send this episode to any friends that may need these insights and frameworks, and feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX Podcast. Thank you.